This is Pastor Eric. Thanks so much for checking out our Life Church podcast. We pray that it's a blessing to you. For more information about Life Church, check us out at lifechurchutah.com. a series of messages that we are calling Jesus like no other. And today we're going to be talking about his sacrifice. He's like no other in sacrifice. I want to, first of all, just uh, thank Debbie Stanton for the beautiful murals and portraits that she's put up here. These were drawn by her. And uh, some are saying, well, where did you get those pictures? Debbie Stanton did that. Don't you appreciate what she has done? Of course, we have uh, the picture of Jesus here. Uh, we don't know what Jesus looked like, but I think Jim Caviezel looks pretty much like Jesus probably looked like, and that's the best we can do. Here's a beautiful portrait of the prophecy that his heel would smash the head of the serpent. Speaking of, of uh, Satan there, that Jesus would smash the heel of, uh, both his heel would smash the head of the serpent. Of course, you have the picture of the universe up there. Today's uh, portraits are so applicable. We have, uh, of course, the nail into his hand here. And on this side, we have the crown of thorns. And I'm just excited to see what she would have for next Sunday, for Easter Sunday. It'll be beautiful, I know that. So thank you, Debbie, for what you've done. Pull your notes out for today's message if you'd like to do that. Um, I have had the uh, privilege of meeting with some very prominent people in my life. Certainly, uh, when I was younger and moving into the ministry, I never thought I would meet some of the people I've had the privilege of meeting. Um, and, it, and it has been a real privilege to meet with some of these folks. I've met leaders from many of the major religions of the world, and uh, I've met many political leaders as well. I've been in some of their offices and uh, have got to shake the hands of the rich and the powerful, at least a few of them. And I've made observations through the years about people. We all do that. Um, and I've made some observations about some of the rich and the powerful as well. One of the things I've noticed about them is how impressive they were in terms of their talent and their abilities, their intellect. You know, they obviously are sometimes a cut above in that regard, certainly a cut above me. And uh, 
they have been very impressive in what they've had to say and um, um, how they live their lives, sometimes how they live their lives and so forth. But I will tell you that even with all the people that I have met in my life, none of them has been as impressive to me as Jesus Christ himself. What I have noticed about people is, is that they often use their, their assets to gain, well, to their own end, and maybe to gain power. They, they use maybe their talents, their intellect to their own end to gain power. And once they gain power, their goal is control. This is an observation I have made about, you say, well, you're being cynical. No, I don't think so. I think I'm being realistic. The way of the world is the way of power and control. The reason I say that is because the way of Satan is the way of power and control. Who has the power? Who has the control? Very few people who gain power ever do so without demanding control as well. And I've seen that in politics, and I've seen that in religion as well. But Jesus is so opposite to that. This is what the prophet said about him, Isaiah 53. My servant grew up in the Lord's presence like a tender green shoot, like a root in dry ground. There was nothing beautiful or majestic about his appearance, nothing to attract us to him. He was despised and rejected. A man of sorrows, acquainted with deepest grief. We turned our backs on him and looked the other way. He was despised and we did not care. Yet it was our weaknesses he carried. It was our sorrows that weighed him down. And we thought his troubles were a punishment from God, a punishment for his own sins. But he was pierced for our rebellion, crushed for our sins. He was beaten so we could be whole. He was whipped so we could be healed. All of us, like sheep, have strayed away. We have left God's paths to follow our own, yet the Lord laid on him the sins of us. He was oppressed and treated harshly, yet he never said a word. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep is silent before the shearers, he did not open his mouth. Unjustly condemned, he was led away. No one cared that he died without descendants, that his life was cut short in midstream. But he was struck down for the rebellion of us. He had done no wrong and had never deceived anyone. But he was buried like a criminal and was put in a rich man's grave. Those scriptures do not describe a man out for power and control. Whoever that scripture is talking about, it's not talking about someone who's out to get, to get it all in a worldly sense. In fact, quite the opposite. Instead of being demanding, this scripture says that Jesus was despised. Instead of demanding, he was rejected. He was a man full of grief and sorrow, pierced and crushed and beaten and whipped for our healing. Pierced and crushed and beaten and whipped for our 
salvation. He was the bearer of our sins. You know, the Apostle Paul got it right when he said in Romans 5, 7, most people would not be willing to die for an upright person, though someone might, might perhaps be willing to die for a person who is ex especially good. In other words, it's saying that the things that most people will die for are very few indeed. And there are some people who will boast that they are willing to give up their lives for some great cause. But in truth, very few live up to the words or to their boasts. But Jesus is so unique that though he was the king of heaven, he was willing to lay aside that place of honor and become one of us. Not born in a palace, but born in a stable. Not, not born into wealth, but born into poverty. Not born as a conqueror, but born as a servant. Not born to ascend to Rome's throne, but born to be lifted up on a Roman cross. That's why he is unique. That's why he's distinctive. That's why he's like no other. The Apostle Paul talks about him in Philippians chapter 2. He says, though he was God, he did not demand or cling to the rights as God, but laid aside his mighty power and glory, taking the disguise of a slave and becoming like men, and he humbled himself even further, going so far as to actually die a criminal's death on a cross. Jesus is like no other in his sacrifice. So why did he do that? Why did that have to happen? I want to talk with you for a few minutes about it. First of all, I would answer that question by saying because we needed a way back to God. Why did he do it? Because we were in jeopardy. We had the problem. And inside your soul, no matter where you are spiritually, you know that what I'm saying is true. We as a race of people have a problem. When, when, when you go to bed at night, when you take time to listen to your heart, you know instinctively that there's a breakdown between you and God and you need a way back to God somehow. Because you see, the Bible tells us we have a problem. And the problem is in our relationship with God. And that relationship has been broken. He didn't break it. We did. He didn't pull away. We did. He didn't sin against us. We sinned against him. We broke the relationship. And we understand that deep inside. We have relationship problems all the time. We don't get along with one another. We don't get along with our neighbor or our boss. We don't get along with our spouse or our kids. We don't get along with people in the church. We don't get along with somebody driving down Bangor. It happens all the time, relationship issues. So it shouldn't come as any surprise that the root of the problem that we have with other people is the relationship problem that we have with God. When the relationship with God is broken, it severs the proper relationship between us and other people. Because that broken relationship 
inevitably leads to every other broken relationship within our, with, with our lives, in our lives. And you know, people go to all kinds of extremes today to try to fix their broken relationships. We spend all kinds of money seeking all kinds of help, but it doesn't really work. It, and if it does, it doesn't last for long, at least not often. And it's because we're trying to fix the wrong problem. We're trying to fix the surface issues. But the real problem is beneath the surface. You can't just treat the surface. You've got to get beneath the surface and go to the real source of the problem. And again, we understand that sometimes in the physical realm. We have a physical problem that can only be fixed by digging under the surface. Sometimes the problem has to be cut out for there to be healing. And the Bible gives a word for the problem that we all have. It's a word called sin. And we don't like that word because it makes us feel guilty. I remember a pastor in a city that I ministered in years ago who said, I never use the word sin from the pulpit. That makes the people feel guilty. I've heard people say, every time I come to church, I feel guilty. You know why you feel guilty when you come to church? It's because you are. We all are. When we're not in right relationship with God, we feel guilty about that. And we can act like we're not or we can try to avoid it, but way down deep inside, even if you avoid church, even if you avoid God's people, even if you avoid the Bible, even if you avoid any kind of a religious telecast or, or radio program, no matter what you do to try to get away from it, it's still there inside of you. There's still something speaking deep down inside, and you can't get away from the fact that your personal sin has messed up your relationship with the Holy God. And inevitably, your relationship with other people. And there doesn't seem to be a single thing that we can do about it. So God did for us what we could not do for ourselves. That's who Jesus is. Jesus is our way back to God. And Jesus was very clear about that. In, in John chapter 14, verse 6, he said, I am the way. He didn't say, I am one of the ways. He said, I am the way. In fact, he goes so far as to say, you can't even get to the Father except through me. You mean to tell me that there's no other way to get to God? I mean, that you know, because we want to believe that all religions, if you're sincere, lead to God. Kind of like all roads lead to Rome. All religions lead to God. And we want to believe that desperately. But that's the reason why people hate Christianity so much. You either love it or you hate it. Because, because it's so in your face about this. There's only one way to get to God, and that's Jesus. Doesn't matter whether you like that or not. That's still the truth. 
And, and that's what God's word has to say about this. We have got a problem, the sin problem. And so God came to fix the sin problem and his fix is Jesus Christ. So Jesus is much more than, than just a, a, a good teacher or an anointed teacher or a great teacher. He's, he's much more than a powerful philosopher. He was, he was so much more than a charismatic leader. He is God's answer for us. He is our way back to God. So Jesus became the ultimate sacrifice to provide for us what we couldn't give ourselves, a way back to God. Number two, does this mean that everyone is saved? So it kind of follows, if Jesus died for the world, then everybody in the world must be saved because he died for all flesh. And that's what the Bible says, he died for everyone. So is it true that everyone is automatically saved because Jesus died on the cross? Well, the short answer to that is no. What it means is that everyone can be saved. It does not mean that everyone is automatically saved. John chapter 1 explains the, 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 the process of all of this, verses 10 through 13. John says, he came into the world, this very world that he created, speaking of Jesus, but the world didn't recognize him. He came to his own people, and even they rejected him. But to all who believed him and accepted him, he gave the right to become children of God. They are reborn, or a term we often use, born again, not with a physical birth resulting from human passion or plan, but a birth that comes from God. Now, what that is saying is that Jesus sacrificed his life for our salvation, and that his sacrifice now offers the gift of salvation to all of us, but we still have to accept it. And that's understandable, that's not rocket science. If I said I had $100 in my hand, and all you have to do is come up here and get it, I would dare say that many of you would lay your pride aside and would rush up here, knocking other people down, trying to get to the $100 bill. But the point is, you would have to accept the $100 bill. You, I could say, I have it for you, it's yours, but unless you accept it, it does you no good, right? You've got to accept it for, you, for it to do you any good. The same thing is true with salvation. The greatest gift of all must be accepted for it to do you any good. And the reason for that is simple, because through acceptance, transformation takes place. If it's just a general uh, salvation, uh, just kind of a wiping clean the slate of all sin of all the world, then it does, it, it does nothing to change your heart because it doesn't transform you. You're still stuck the way you've been. But when you accept it, the Spirit of God comes to live within you, and you become a new person. Look again at verse number 12. But to all who believed him and what? Accepted him. He gave the right to become children of God. That's why I've said to you many times that it's popular to believe that we're all part of the family of God. We're all children of God. You know, people say that all the time. We're all God's children so forth. And that's not biblical. The Bible says that we are all God's creation, but you are God's child 
by being reborn into the family. It's a spiritual rebirth, and that happens by accepting the gift of salvation. That gives you the right to become children of God. Verse 10 says in this, in this scripture that he came to everyone. He came to the whole world. That was his target audience, but it says most people didn't recognize him. Why? Because they weren't looking for him. And they, those that did would not accept him. So it did them absolutely no good. And then in verse 11, it says that he even came to his own people, the Jews, who should have recognized him because their prophets talked about him over and over and over again. And here's Jesus fulfilling all of those prophecies. But again, they didn't accept him. In fact, it says they went so far that they rejected him. Not only were they ambivalent to him, but they absolutely rejected him. In other words, as far as they were concerned, if Jesus was God's answer, they weren't interested. And that's still the, tr the truth today, isn't it? Still true today. People still reject him. If he's God's solution to their sin problem, they'd rather have the sin. If Jesus is God's answer to their broken relationships, they'd rather be broken. But look again at what verse 12 says. To all who believed him and accepted him, he gave the right to become children of God. To people who would rather have God's answer than their sin, to people who would rather be whole than broken, to people who would rather have peace than guilt, to those people... God gives all the rights and the privileges of being part of the family, a child of God. And that affects your eternity. But it also affects your today. Jesus put it this way in John 10, 10. The thief's purpose, and here he's talking about Satan. The thief's purpose is to steal, kill, and destroy. But his purpose, Christ's purpose, is to give life in all of its fullness. So you can choose to live under the control of the enemy if you want, under the control of Satan, and in the process, have him steal your potential, have him kill your sense of value and purpose, have him destroy your future, or you can accept Jesus and receive life in all of its fullness. Listen to how some of the other English translations render the Greek word translated fullness here. Life in abundance, life abundantly, life to the full, a rich and satisfying life, a life that is more and better than you've ever dreamed of, having everything you need. And that brings me to my final thought today. How do I receive this life? Several years ago, I was, I was called to the bedside of a woman who was dying of cancer. And I knew some of her family. She was not a follower of Christ, never had time for Jesus in her life, wasn't interested. But some of her family came to my church, and so through them, she asked that I come and, and see her. She was told that she had only a short time to live and that she wanted to get herself ready for eternity. As I talked with her, I could tell that she did have a sincere desire to make things right with God. 
that she regretted the life that she had lived. And so I shared with her these simple truths from the Bible. First of all, Romans 3.23, for everyone has sinned, we all fall short of God's glorious standard. So we talked about that, how this is true of every human being. Me, Billy Graham, you, her, all of us. Romans 6.23 says there's a consequence to this. The wages of that sin is death. But God has provided the way out. The free gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. So here's our problem. We can't fix ourselves, but God fixed it for us. And, and here's this gift again, that word gift. Any gift, you have to receive it. And then I took her to Revelation 3.20, and I said to her, you know, sometimes God will use different things to get our attention. Sometimes he will actually use a catastrophic health issue to get a hold of us, to get our attention. Could be a financial collapse, could be a marital collapse. It can be a lot of things, because people, when everything's going great, ah, God's cool, that's great, love Jesus, yeah, okay. But they don't really, you know, follow him. But boy, when tragedy hits, now I'm going to tell you something, if that's you, you better move past that. That's, that's okay to get you to God in the first place, but you better get past that and move into a deepening and growing relationship with God because that's the only thing that will really work for you. But I said, through your, your, your health problem, Jesus is standing at the door and knocking. And he's saying, if you will hear his voice and if you will open his, the door, he will come in, and that's a King James word there, sup with you. He will fellowship with you. He will connect with you, and then you with him as well. So the idea here is that we've got this sin problem. God is, has the remedy through Christ, eternal life, um, because the sin problem leads to death. God's got eternity and eternal life for us through Christ. And now Jesus is knocking at the door. And if you, will, if you hear the knock this morning... If you hear the voice and will open your heart to him, he says, I will come in. And then 1 John 1, 9, then if we confess our sins to him, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all, from all of our wickedness. So I asked her if she understood what I had just shared with her, and she said that she did. And then I said, would you like to receive Jesus Christ? as your Savior and your Lord, she said, would you please pray with me? And we prayed together. And she gave her heart to Jesus. And just a transformation in her spirit took place as she's laying there on that bed. About a week and a half later, she died. And the family asked me to do the funeral. And at that funeral, as I was sharing with the people who were gathered there, the mourners that were gathered, I... Uh, I said, you know, I want to share with you what, her, what the most important things were to her at the end of her life, the things that we talked about. And so I shared those four scriptures. All have sinned. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. Jesus is standing at the door of your heart and knocking. If you'll open it up, he'll come in. And then if you'll confess your sin, he'll forgive you and cleanse you and make you a child of God. So I shared those, th those four principles with the congregation that was gathered. And then I just asked if any of them 
wanted to do what she had done. I was shocked at the number of hands that shot up. It made sense. Absolutely. I get it. I understand I got a problem. And it's filtering out into all my relationships. It's tearing everything up. I'm on the verge of divorce over this. I have anger control issues that are unbearable, unbelievable. I turn into a different person. I, I'm an alcoholic. I, I have relationship problems over that. I'm a drug addict. I have relationship problems. Whatever the issue was in their life, I don't know. Hands went up all over the place of those that were gathered because many of them were not believers. And I prayed with them to receive Jesus Christ as Savior and to make him the Lord of their life. Before I close, I want, I want to go back to the scripture that I shared with you earlier in the message from Romans chapter 5. Only this time I want to add the next verse as well. It's Romans 5. I shared 7 with you. I want to share 8 with you as well. Most people would not be willing to die for an upright person, though someone might perhaps be willing to die for a person who is especially good. But God showed his great love for us by sending Christ to die for us while we were still sinners. Look at verse 8 again. God loved you and me so much that Jesus died for us even before we showed any desire for him, even before we showed any inclination to accept his gift of salvation. Those verses are saying that even if someone was willing to die for a really good person, it is unthinkable that someone would die for a person who doesn't appreciate it. But that's what God did through Jesus. With no guarantee that you or I would accept the gift. With no guarantee that you and I would make Jesus our Savior. Christ died a brutal death at the outside chance that one of you this morning would say, I get it. I want what God is offering to me today. I need it. I get it. And I want it more than anything. At the outside chance that anybody here would say, that's my desire. God put him on the cross. Even if no one else had ever accepted Jesus, at the outside chance that you would. He says, I'll put him on the cross. I'll brutalize him for your sin. I'll do it for you. And if you are willing to invite him to forgive you of your past, to take away your guilt, to make him the Lord of your life, which means he's the boss, not you. Today is your day. This is Pastor Eric. Thanks so much for checking out our Life Church podcast. We pray that it's a blessing to you. For more information about Life Church, check us out at lifechurchutah.com.